Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wrap, brought to you by Michigan Medicine Headlines. I'm Dan Elman with the Department of Communication. Today, we're going to recognize Mental Health Awareness Month by taking a closer look at eating disorders, a component of mental health that is often overlooked. Now, before we get into that important conversation, take a few minutes to go back and get caught up on any episode of The Wrap you may have overlooked. You can find the shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcast hosting platform. Shows are also housed on the Michigan Medicine YouTube channel and as part of the headlines, we can review. With that, let's bring in two members of the team behind the Comprehensive Eating Disorders Program here at Michigan Medicine. First, can the two of you introduce yourselves and share what your role is within the organization? Sure. My name is Jessica Van Hees. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist um, and a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry. So um, I also in that in the role with the Comprehensive Eating Disorder Program am the clinical director of that program. Yeah, and I'm Natalie Prohaska. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist um, within the departments of pediatrics and psychiatry, and I'm the medical di- director for the Comprehensive Eating Disorders Program. Great. Now, before we take a deep dive into this conversation, can you give our listeners the official definition of eating disorder and what some of the most common ones are? Sure. And, you know, I don't I don't know that there's one official definition. So that's what makes it kind of tricky. I think one kind of overarching concept that would apply to all of the eating disorders is that it involves sort of a disturbance in a person's eating patterns um, um, and can also really impact their health. Um, Many, but not all of the eating disorders also include a a component related to body image, right? So fears about weight gain or a desire to lose weight um, and sort of those concerns taking up a large portion of a a person's thoughts and behaviors. Um, But importantly, not all of the eating disorders include that. And I think that's something that not a lot of people know. Um, So I think oftentimes with eating disorders, people think of things like anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, um, or even binge eating disorder, which are some of the more common um, ones that people have heard of. But there are others as well. One example is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is a mouthful. So it often is called ARFID for short. which is when someone's unable to um, have enough nutritional intake, but it's not due to reasons related to concerns about their body image or weight. So for example, somebody with ARFID um, might have just really extreme levels of kind of picky selective eating that does not allow them to eat enough foods in terms of the volume or foods with the right balance of nutrients. And that's just one example of what ARFID can, can look like. So lots of different eating disorders out there. Yeah, why would you say there's such a stigma attached to eating disorders? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, with this being Mental Health Awareness Month, I think in general, um, mental health disorders tend to have a stigma. Um, But I think even greater than that, eating disorders, I think a lot of it comes from um, some of the biases around who has an eating disorder. So people in their mind sort of picture this is a wealthy white thin woman who has this eating disorder, then it's very like vain in nature. um, And just if they just ate, everything would be better. I think, unfortunately, that's just not the case um, that that these people who have eating disorders are um, in a constant battle. 
um, with themselves and with the people around them. A lot of times we're telling them you need to eat, you need to do these things, or um, you need to change the way that you're eating. Um, and they're just this huge battle inside them. And then I think on the other point of that is that uh, this affects everybody. This affects all races, all SES um, groups, all countries. Um, and so anybody in any shape or size or weight can have an eating disorder. Um, and it's unfortunate that only kind of the smaller group is the ones that are known. Um, so I think that's kind of a component that a lot of the stigma comes from. Yeah, and it's probably along, like you said, a lot of mental health disorders have that stigma, you know, associated with it, where, you know, a lot of times from an outside perspective, it's just like, why can't you be happy today? You know, just put on a smile, right? And it's not that easy. And for this, it's like, why can't you eat less? Or why can't you mm -hmm. eat more? Um, you know, where a lot of times the people who aren't going through it don't understand it, right? Yeah. And I say, if it was that easy, we wouldn't have a program. We wouldn't need to have all these experts doing it because um, a lot of times these are very um, perfectionistic, people-pleasing people who really want to do what's right and, and are really driven, um, and yet they cannot make themselves do it due to this tremendous fear that happens. And so um, if it was that easy, we wouldn't have a program. Yeah. So obviously the fact that this isn't easy uh, is one of the misperceptions around eating disorders. What are some other common misperceptions about eating disorders? Yeah, I think one of them was what we already mentioned, right? This misperception that it only affects girls. Um, it only affects people who are white or affluent and it's sort of related to like vanity, you know, just stop worrying so much about your body, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think also along with that, there's this idea that there's a certain look to an eating disorder, like um, that people with eating disorders um, are always sort of very underweight or emaciated appearing when in fact, we know that people with eating disorders have all body types. Um, so you really can't tell that somebody has an eating disorder just by looking at them. Um, and I think that also goes along um, with binge eating disorder. I think there's an assumption that people with binge eating disorders are always going to be living in a larger body, um, but people with binge eating disorder can also be um, sort of any, any weight or shape. So we can't kind of make an assumption about um, experiences that somebody is having just by looking at their weight. Um, another really common one I hear from a lot of patients and family members um, is this idea that recovery is not possible. So like I'll, I'll often hear families say, you know, well, my son is going to deal with this for the rest of his life, right? Like since he has this now, he's 15, this is going to be something he'll battle forever. Um, I think that's such a common misperception about, about eating disorders. And actually what we know is, especially with early intervention, access to evidence-based intervention, full recovery is is totally possible. Um, so there are people who receive treatment and it's sort of like a, a memory from the past, like, wow, that was a that was a weird experience I had when I was 20 years old or whatever and went through this and are able to really put, put it behind them. I think the idea that um, recovery is impossible um, comes from the fact that there are people who struggle throughout their lives with really chronic eating disorders. And of course, those are the situations that we hear about maybe in the news or the media or really 
really stick out to um, um, physicians or other care providers as well. And so I don't want to minimize that there are people that, that struggle for a really long time, but we also see many, many people who get sort of the right treatment intensively. Um, and one of the key parts of that is early detection, right? And so we know the earlier it's detected, the, detected, the more um, effective treatment can be. And I think that goes along with um, that idea that an eating disorder can look like all sorts of different things. And if early detection is so important, it's really important to, to be talking to a lot of patients about these issues um, so that we can detect it early and catch it and get people the right treatment. All right. So let's talk about that treatment a little bit more. What type of services are out there for people who are seeking help, both at Michigan Medicine and beyond? Yeah. So here in our um, sort of world, um, we have the Comprehensive Eating Disorders Program. We see patients from ages 8 to 22, so kind of the spectrum of ages up until um, young adulthood. Um, and we have an intensive program, currently um, uh, a virtual intensive outpatient program, so the patients come three days a week, three hours a day for groups virtually, and then have um, adolescent medicine and psychiatry appointments, um, as well as parents are involved in the treatment. Um, uh, we also, when back in person, we'll have what's called a PHP, where folks will come um, and have meals in session at the hospital with us, uh, as well as groups, um, psychiatry visits, adolescent medicine visits, those types of things. In general, for kids with eating disorders, you're gonna need to have a multidisciplinary team. So you're gonna want to have um, a pediatrician or if it's an adult, um, an internal medicine doc, family medicine doc, who's really monitoring the medical components because there are a lot of medical complications that can come from these disorders. And so there's such an overlap between sort of the mind and the body here. And so you really wanna have a, a multi multitude of people involved. So having um, a practitioner as well as a therapist of some sort. And then we know that nutrition um, and making sure that people are eating enough and uh, at a variety of times throughout the day with a variety of types of foods is so important. A lot of times people will also have a dietitian who's involved who has experience with eating disorders. So we kind of think of a variety of levels of care. So there's outpatient, and that's kind of the team that I just described. Um, and then there's uh, intensive outpatient uh, partial hospitalization program, which is what we do here at Michigan Medicine. And there's a couple other programs in the state that also have that. Um, and then there are uh, residential programs, which is a program where somebody is living at a facility for 30 to 60 days and really getting very intensive treatment, meal support, um, therapy, all of those types of things. And then at the very highest level of care um, is inpatient hospitalization. So either on a medical floor or a psychiatric floor to get really intensive treatment when there's an acute need. Um, typically we try and keep people at the lowest level of care. So once they're safe to get them back at home, get them um, back incorporated into life while still getting the intensive treatment that they need. I want to take sort of a, a, a higher view of eating disorders within our society, right? There's always a cultural focus on weight loss and dieting and you see it in magazines and you, you know, people talk about Photoshop these photos and make me look younger and thinner and, you know, things like that. Uh, what can we do on sort of a personal individual by individual level 
to help change our cultural focus that will assist sort of people in, in overcoming these eating disorders or really not having to deal with them at all? Yeah, I think it's such an important point, right? We see this everywhere. Um, oftentimes families will say to us like, oh my gosh, until my child developed this problem, I knew that these ideas were around, but I didn't notice how constant it is until now I've got a kid who's really struggling with this. And I'm seeing it every time I turn on the TV, just trying to drive to Mott for their medical and psychiatric appointments. And they're seeing billboards about weight, weight loss, right? Like it's, it's everywhere once you start to pay attention um, to it. Um, and you know, what I usually say to families is, gosh, we know that that cultural focus on weight and dieting and losing weight all by itself didn't cause their child's eating disorder. It's extremely unlikely that that alone caused it um, because we're all exposed to that all of the time. So if it was that all by itself, we would probably see even higher rates of eating disorders than we, than we do. Um, and it can be a really important component of the development and of sort of thinking about in terms of treatment, right? So I think for some people, that backdrop of our culture and the focus on weight and bodies and weight loss and food um, can kind of interact with their own genetic predispositions, their own life experience to kind of produce this. And then um, sort of addressing it more directly can be really helpful. Um, and, you know, I think it can be really hard to spot because it's just like the language we all use every day, right? Like how often have we heard people or even said ourselves like, oh, I was so bad yesterday. Like I cheated because I ate that brownie, right? It's just like a part of our language. And when you really stop and think about it, like you were bad, you were a bad person because you ate a brownie, which is delicious, right? <laughs> this idea that that um, food, you know, can't be eaten just for joy or because it adds value to our life, that, it, that there's some moral piece to it. Um, you know, I also think that comes up with movement and exercise, like often people are valuing movement because they're trying to change their body in some way as a result of that movement or trying to burn off calories, right? What if we focused on moving in ways that bring us joy and value to our life, right? Um, and there are actually, there's actually some ideas um, um, related to this that are out there around better ways of helping people manage their eating patterns and their health. Um, it's, it's an idea called health at every size that um, there's been a lot of research on and, and sort of the idea behind it is instead of um, focusing so much with people on trying to lose weight, um, or trying to change specific eating patterns, kind of focusing more on nurturing our bodies by eating regularly, having a variety of nutrients, finding ways to move that bring us joy and happiness rather than watching calories count down on a treadmill um, and sort of really addressing health in that more holistic way versus focusing only on, you know, trying to lose weight or trying to change one's body. And I think another component of that that uh, is a big discussion within the eating disorder community is this idea that um, people are uh, uh, asked a lot of times to, to change the way they're eating, to, to restrict certain calories, and that we know from research that by restricting your calories, you end up 
um, the brain says, I want food, I want food, I want food. And that actually creates times when then people feel out of control and actually end up eating more. And so that's that sort of yo-yo effect that we see with dieting um, because the brain is trying to compensate and it's saying we need food and your body is trying to take in the nutrients that it needs. Um, and so then people end up feeling like they are bad, that they somehow don't have the self-control or self-will to, to do this when in actuality, it's just our body's natural way of managing restriction. Um, and so this is definitely a different way of looking at things. And sometimes in the eating disorder community, we're kind of this lone voice saying, wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> um, but I think we see that and, and people have talked for so many years about why dieting doesn't work. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to these natural things that our body does and that we're really just creating more stress and more um, harm to people actually by what we're doing right now. Now we've talked about some of the external impact uh, that you know, culture, there, there might be culturally on eating disorders. Have you seen an impact that the pandemic itself has had on eating disorder cases over the last two plus years? Yeah. So um, both Dr. Van Heist and I were a part of a paper recently, which um, was published in pediatric journal um, around our hospitalization rate um, nearly doubled um, from the pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. So, um, and from our adolescent medicine folks that has continued. So that hasn't stopped since the publication. Um, they used to see maybe one to two new consults a week, typically on their service at any time, it's between like eight and 10 people on their service right now. Um, and so we are definitely seeing the impacts um, on our wait list, we have upwards of 60 to 70 people waiting um, for resources and families once they get to us say like, thank goodness, this has been such a journey and it's really hard to find resources, um, let alone just for mental health, but for eating disorders. Um, and so it can be a real challenge, even once somebody leaves us, um, trying to find availability in the community. Um, people are really overloaded right now. And so pretty much for everything, there's a sense of waiting. Um, and so, you know, as a group, we're trying to think about how can we help those families while they're waiting more intensive services. Um, so that is something as a group that we're really looking into. Has that been sort of caused by isolation, by added stress? What do we think are the causes of that? Yeah, I don't think there's one easy answer. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I don't think we, I don't think we know. I mean, we've seen, it fits within the general increases in distress and mental health difficulties that we're seeing in kind of the, the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? We're also seeing increased rates of depression. We know there's a real mental health crisis in youth. Um, we know our psychiatric emergency room is constantly overloaded with patients um, and then constantly struggling to find placement for those patients that need to be psychiatrically hospitalized because there is not enough bed availability, right? So this fits within the larger context of the mental health challenges that we're seeing. Um, it, it's difficult to know for sure why we're seeing this and why we're seeing it for eating disorders. Um, earlier in the pandemic, we were hearing lots of kids sort of say to us like, well, everything was, was locked down. I wasn't going to school. I wasn't doing my sports. I wasn't doing my hobbies. And I just 
I had too much time and I started to focus too much on what I was eating. And I started exercising multiple times per day because I had the time, you know, now that things are a little more open back up, we're not hearing that narrative so much now. And yet we're still seeing this increased rate of, of cases. So I think there's more to come to understand why this continues to occur. Interesting. Now, if one of our listeners, um, you know, believes that they have an eating disorder or someone in their family has an eating disorder, what do you advise that they do? You know, if you had to give them one piece of advice right now, what should they be doing when they stop listening to this podcast? I think go and see their um, primary care physician. Um, You want to have somebody be able to talk with you about both the psychological symptoms as well as sort of what's been going on with the weight um, and concerns about the trajectory over time. Um, And so I think that's, that's a really good place to start. And I think there's a lot of emphasis within the eating disorder community about educating primary care doctors on how to for this type of issue um, and then how to send them to the right resources. So I typically say for kids, that's one of the um, main places where uh, this gets caught and seen. And a lot of times it's because they're coming in for um, a well visit, a well child visit, and there's a change in the weight pretty significantly that the parents maybe didn't even recognize. Um, so I think that's a really good place to start. And I'll just say one other option. Um, going online, there's some really good resources via um, Mita as well as the Feast website um, that can be really helpful for families and people who are experiencing these difficulties. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information. And I know for a lot of people, it'll be much needed information. So Natalie and Jessica, I appreciate you coming on today and talking about the work that that you guys do. Now, Jessica, you lost in the uh, game of tic-tac-toe earlier. So your job is not done. Uh, We have the lightning round coming where we ask you four quick fire questions that may or may not be related to work. So are you ready to go? I'm ready. All right. Now, as we've mentioned, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. What's your favorite way to relax and wind down after work? Um, watching very bad television on my couch after my kids are in bed. Got to do something mindless. So Absolutely. Bring me all well, the bad reality television. Right. And sometimes the bad TV is very good TV, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, this week, we're going to be running a list of some of our employees' favorite locations around the state of Michigan. Where's your favorite place to visit? Hmm. Any of the lakes, any of the lakes love to be by a body of water. Excellent. Uh, Memorial day is just around the corner. Is there a specific holiday that you love to celebrate with your family? Um, Halloween. Halloween's a fun one. I've got two, two young kids. So figuring out the costumes and all that is, is fun these days. That's awesome. All right. Now, finally, if you weren't doing the job you have now, what career would you want to pursue? Hmm. I don't know, but I do know that when I was a child, like many small children, I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist because I thought dolphins were pretty cool. So I'll go with that. Well, and they are still pretty cool. They are still pretty cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for being a great sport with us and, uh, and sharing this information and sharing a little bit more about yourself. So thank you to you and to Natalie for sharing more information about the Comprehensive Eating Disorders Clinic. If you want to learn more about the clinic and eating disorders in general, go to mmheadlines.org. That's mmheadlines.org. And while you're there, you could check out other featured stories from recent days. There was a look back at the med school commencement ceremony, 
and readers met the new team tasked with spotting and stopping sepsis in Michigan medicine patients. Find all that and much, much more at mmheadlines.org. All right, it's time for the Rep Trivia Contest. Last week, we asked listeners, which areas of rest and relaxation recently celebrated their first anniversary at Michigan Medicine? The answer is the recharge rooms. Congratulations to Gina Sawani, who sent in the correct answer. Now for this week's question. How many students earned their MDs as part of the U of M Medical School class of 2022? Once again, how many students earned their MDs as part of the U of M Medical School class of 2022? You can find the answer in the recent commencement story, and once you know it, send it to headlines at med.umich.edu for the chance to win a prize. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you to Jessica and Natalie for joining us today, and thanks, as always, to all of our listeners and viewers for everything you do for patients, families, and each other. We'll see you next week.